Hello, welcome to Creative Conversations, the Tiger Spirit podcast exploring creativity in life, the arts and business. I'm your host, Yang Mei Ui, and I'm a multimedia author. Now, we seem to be having a run of theatre-related conversations recently here on Creative Conversations, so I thought I would add to it an interview I did back in 2008 with a repertory theatre actor. I made the recording for my first podcast series, the Fusion View podcast, and I did that in association with the London Theatre Blog. So in the audio, you will hear reference uh, to Fusion View and the London Theatre Blog. At the time of the recording, the actor I talked to used the stage name Walter Plinge to keep his identity private. He passed away in 2015, and I think he would not mind now for his real name to be revealed. He was my good friend Philip Blaine, and it was an honour to have known him and had the chance to share his story as a legacy and tribute to a lovely and talented man. So here we go. The Fusion View podcast, talking to Walter Plinge. The 1950s was a golden age of repertory theatre in the UK. That was a time when an actor might be playing Shakespeare one week while rehearsing for a Noel Coward play the next week and audiences might see Laurence Olivier in the lead role one night and as the second spear carrier the next night. It was also a key transition point as John Osborne's kitchen sink drama Look Back in Anger burst onto the scene to challenge the established expectation of what theatre should be about. What was it like working as an actor at that important time in English theatre? Hello, my name is Yang Mei Ui, and this is a special Fusion View podcast for the London Theatre Blog. To hear firsthand about life in the theatre in the 1950s, I've coaxed actor Walter Plinge out of retirement to tell us about his experiences in repertory theatre during that golden age. Well, thanks for talking to me, Walter Plinge. I'm very pleased to do so. <laughs> now then, Walter Plinge, that's a very unusual name. Can you tell me something about that? Yes. Well, of course, my real name is not Walter Plinge. It isn't? No, 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 I'm afraid not. Ah. Uh, it's a very old tradition that has been used in the English theatre. Um, as far as I can find out, it first came into the English theatre in about 1900. Right? And then... And Frank Benson, who was one of those actor-managers who used to run his own company to give himself nice big parts, took over the Lyceum Theatre in London, the place where uh, the Lion King is now running, mm -hmm. in 1900. It was the tradition in those days to work very much with a repertoire system, not long runs, though the runs of plays were beginning if actor-managers could be persuaded to do a series of performances. This meant that there was a lot of rehearsal, especially with big cast plays. And in those days, the casts could be enormous. They could have, even for a conventional play, you could have a cast of 15 or more, right. which was quite common. And this meant that your parts got smaller, and often you would have long times not on stage. And the tradition grew that they would all run out of the theatre when they got a break, and went to the local pub. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and the local landlord, his name was Plinge. I'm not really sure whether his name was Walter or not, but anyway, it was decided 
that it would be useful to use his name in the programs in the theatre. And so, whenever there was an actor who, say, took a secondary role as well as a primary role, he would appear in that secondary role under the name of Walter Plinge. Oh, right. So, for example, in a theatre company of 15 actors, yes. you may need an extra person to come on stage, but you, you didn't have enough people. So yes. somebody else would come on. And double. And double. That's it. Right. Exactly what happened. Right. I myself did appear as Walter Plinge in a production. It was very common in Shakespeare, but I appeared as Walter Plinge in a production in rep of The Taming of the Shrew. I was playing Batista, and he is the father of Kate. Mm -hmm and appears in Acts 1 and 5, a little bit at the start of 2 and the end of 4, but not in the rest of the play. So suddenly I appeared with a completely different costume, different makeup, different headgear and everything else, as the haberdasher, <laughs> who has about three or four lines in the middle of the play. That's a typical, typical example. And, and would it confuse the audience? Would you look different? You would look oh, yes. The uh, object was to disguise yourself as much as possible. Right, so that um, extended your range of acting. So. Yes, indeed. Uh, sometimes there have been remarks that uh, actors have looked very like Laurence Olivier in a, an <laughs> Olivier production for some little part in Act Two of that. And indeed he is known, and a lot of other very big stars have been known to have Walter Plinge parts. Oh, right. So yeah. it's quite common. It seems to have died out. I've known it in, in opera programmes as well. Valtreuta Plinge has appeared before <laughs> now on stage. But she has it seems now to have gone. In the United States, they had another name, and this tradition goes back to the 1880s. But there they would use it not only for the doubling of parts, but for um, a, a corpse being played on stage, or even the names of animals. But <laughs> it wasn't Walter Plinge. I'm sorry, I forget what right, the name was. Right. Yeah. But, but yes, I think these days you see, you know, John Smith and he, you see what the two or three roles that he's got. Yes, yes. Okay. Now, when did you start your acting career? Right. I started my acting career by going to RADA uh, back at the time of the coronation, 1953. And my actual professional debut was in that year. Gosh, the year of the coronation? Absolutely. And very much involved in the coronation, too. Because the play in which we appeared was called Out of the Wind... Uh, my goodness. Out of the Whirlwind by Christopher Hassel. Mm -hmm. And it was presented at Westminster Abbey on the site of the coronation throne, etc. We used to remove the throne before we started the acting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was a, a lot of... Very big names in the theatre were in it, but quite a few of us rather students. Oh, right. And I did the... I didn't carry a spear, but I carried a banner. <laughs> <laughs> and I also was used as um, an air raid warden, etc., etc., these sort of things. It was uh, one of those historic plays that went through the history of time. Uh, the lead was Faye Compton. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Mm, I'm sure it was, yes. and, and what a way to start your, your Absolutely. Career. I've never had another dressing room as magnificent as the Henry VII <laughs> Chapel. Not ever since. <laughs> now, what, what drew you into acting? It's hard to answer that, really. I'm, like many a person, I was taken by theatre very early in my life. In fact, it was just before the war when I went with my... Uh, parents to Cardiff uh, where there was a tour of a musical 
Um, I cannot remember for sure because we went two successive weeks. Either it was the Belle of New York or the Maid in the Mountains, which I don't know for sure. But I saw that and went back and I was stage-struck. Immediately, um, part of our room, our playroom, was turned into a stage <laughs> and curtains were set up and everything. <laughs> and the ambition never left me. It was that from then onwards. Mm -hmm. And uh, were your parents supportive of your uh, chosen uh, career? To an extent. My father certainly. My father certainly did not think it was a very steady life to come. But he believed very strongly that if it's what we wanted, oh, I wanted to do, then I should do it, yes. Mm -hmm. My mother was less um, happy about it ever. She never really was very happy. Mm -hmm. She preferred you to what, to be an accountant? She would have liked <laughs> me to do one of the professions, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> lawyer, church, uh, whatever. <laughs> Something nice and respectable and decent in English. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was Rada like um, when you were there? Oh, any of your contemporaries have hit the big time? Oh, yes, there were a lot. Indeed, it was a sort of vintage period around that time. It was the time of people like uh, Peter O'Toole. Oh, I, I knew Joe Orton and um, Halliwell as, mm -hmm. as well there. Um, oh, quite a lot of them. Anne Beach was there, who's quite well known today. There were quite a number of people, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a flavour of the kind of sort of acting tasks you might have to have done? Very different from today. Uh, television was very little in it. In fact, I don't remember doing anything for television while I was at RADA. Broadcasting, yes, but it was a very minor part of it. Uh, we were trained basically for theatre, and quite a lot of it for, sh uh, for Shakespeare and classical theatre, but certainly not all. Mm -hmm. uh, from your very first term where you did scenes from plays, the choice of plays would be quite wide. They would be, a lot of them would be interesting world drama plays that you were not likely to meet uh, professionally in, 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 in those days, you know. But to give you a, a flavour of what world theatre plays were like. But we also naturally did Shakespeare and what were then considered modern plays before the kitchen sink era started. <laughs> um, uh, can you just tell us a bit more what you mean by world, world theatre? Yes, well, you'd look at people like... The Chipek brothers, say, the insect play, oh, yes. that sort of thing, and are you are. And we would look at certainly American drama. We did Vedekind. Um, oh, it's, it's hard to say, but a great deal. We were mainly looking at 20th century, um, not prior European plays. Certainly Chekhov, etc., but they were already in the general current theatre. Mm -hmm. um, Ibsen, that lot. No, I was meaning far more 20th century playwrights. So after you graduated and your um, auspicious beginnings at Westminster Abbey, um, <laughs> what kind of work were you doing um, during the 50s? Well, uh, you said that that was the start at RADA. It was my first term at RADA that I did right. the play. And after I had done a year at RADA, I went in to do my national service. So in fact, I didn't start working in the theatre mm -hmm. till after I'd gone out of that gone back to RADA for another year to finish my course, okay. which was quite a common thing to do. So it was 1958 when I started my career, and I started at Derby Rep. Uh, it was in January. I'd finished at RADA in the December, and had hoped, actually, at that time, I had been engaged to appear in a Shakespeare company, the one that was, in those days, using... 
um, Regent's Park in the, uh, mm. in the summertime. But I was going to go on the tour before that, which included Spain, a lot of interesting places. But uh, uh, Robert Aitkins, who was the man who was running it, went down with bronchial pneumonia over Christmas, and so the whole tour was cancelled. Oh, what a shame. So, yes, indeed <laughs> it was. Um, I'd also, actually, auditioned for RADA, uh, for um, the Royal Shakespeare Company at that time, which was just starting up as the Royal Shakespeare Company, and was the star of that vintage year, Peter Brook, etc., etc. And I got in. I got wow. both jobs. But I went to John Fernald at that time and asked him, which he said well, I was going to be offered better parts with the Aitken, so I took that one instead. A big mistake. Oh. Uh, but there you are. Um, I was suddenly back after Christmas in London, thinking I was going to start work the next week, out of work. Oh. <laughs> but that, I suppose, is the kind of typical beginning, or a, a, a play, typical flavour to the kind of actor's life. Oh, absolutely. It's a very good start for <laughs> so out of work. <laughs> So, so what did you do? So how did you... Well, I had already written to, uh, to Derby, and Derby had replied, um, and I had said no to it because I'd got these other jobs mm. offered. But then I thought, well, I must try them again. And I wrote, and they said, yes, come. Mm. And so I went up and started. What was the, the real blight on me at that time was, soon after starting there, it was weekly rep, hard work, and in my first week there, the Royal Shakespeare, who had heard about Robert Atkins, uh, telephoned the theatre and said, would they release me to go to them? Gosh. But Leslie Twelve Trees, who was running the theatre, was adamant he could not spare me. Hmm. And so I was stuck in weekly hmm. rep <laughs> at the start. Uh, so can, can you just tell us a bit more, what, what, what does rep mean? Right. The repertory system is not nearly so strong as it used to be. At that time, it was the backbone of English theatre. Uh, it was where you went to learn your trade and to get yourself known, etc., etc. The repertory system in most of the country uh, before this had come from the stock companies. The stock companies were companies that would tour around with a whole stock of plays. And they had what they called stock characters in them, such oh, as yeah, right. the heavy father or the, oh, you know, these sort of things. A bit like the old Commedia dell'arte characters. And these ones, you were engaged as that particular actor, the juve lead, the second juve, the ingenue, whatever it was. I was engaged for assistant stage management <laughs> 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 and for play as cast, which is what was normally said. The difference with the two is that in the other one, the repertoire system, as we now would say, but repertory, was that you would have a certain number of plays which repeated, uh, say, one week of one, then one week of another, then one week of another, and then go back and start again. But that system was never used in rep. I did do that system, I'll tell you about it later. But in rep, it was one play per, in Derby's case, week, in a lot of cases, two weeks, and in very prestigious cases, uh, you'd get three weeks. So you have one company of actors of about 15 people or so. Yes, it wouldn't have been so many. By this, 15 actors goes back right. rather right. earlier. So how, how many would there be? Um, we would have had, uh, of the actors, you'd have about eight. 
Right, so eight and, actors. And then you'd have uh, acting stage management, right. who could act as well for more parts. Oh, right. So um, you were doubling behind the scenes yes. as well as... Yes, okay. yes, that was the Okay. Um, and so you had eight people and then the, the, the backstage people who could double if necessary. Yes. Um, and you were doing one play a week, possibly. Yes. Um, and you'd switch over, so the next week you'd do another play? Oh, yes, indeed. So you'd have to learn all these plays. I'd better, I better explain how, how the system worked. Uh, we'll start on Tuesday. Tuesday morning in Weekly Rep, you would all congregate on stage, stage management and cast... And if you were both, you'd be jumping from one to the other <laughs> as necessary. Uh, you would read through the whole play in that one morning. Gosh. Not only would you read it through, you would block it. There was never just a read-through of the play. You never had a chance for that. Uh. You'd get up. You'd probably been given the script on Saturday night so that you could read it and know your part, uh, well, know about it. Um, generally speaking, in those days, plays were in three acts. Oh, sorry, can you just explain block? To block, block oh, to block it is to, sorry about that, <laughs> is to tell people their moves, where right. they sit and where they stand, where they smoke and where they do everything physically. Right. right. That is to block it. Very often the scripts that were used were known as the French's acting editions, which had all this blocking done for you. But if you had anything like a, an inventive director, this was ignored. If you didn't, it was not ignored. <laughs> And I will tell you a bit later on, I worked with a director. I don't think I'd better give his name, although he is lots instead. And after I had worked with him, I was talking with a friend some years later, and we both compared notes. And he said, oh, he, I was with one like that too, in a different place. But we both decided, we'd started who's the worst director we've ever worked with. <laughs> and we decided there was this man. And he would be stuck with the French's acting edition I'll swear he'd often not read the play before we started blocking it. <laughs> and I came to one occasion, and I said to him, it says move down left, but I am down left. What do I do? The answer was, oh dear, we'd better go and read back and see what happened, he said. <laughs> he had no idea, this man. <laughs> anyway, but yes, on the Tuesday morning, the blocking was done. For the stage management, there would be very little time for lunch, and then you'd get on to preparing the stage management side of the new production, going out to the shops and borrowing props to be used on stage, uh, having something to do with the scenic designer to see what his needs were, etc., etc., what soft furnishings would be needed. Um, it was your, your job also, writing off then, to write for the scripts for the next week's play so that they would arrive in time, to send back the scripts of the play that had just finished would happen then. You'd have no time on the Monday, I promise you. Uh, you also had to uh, prepare for that night's performance. It was an exceedingly busy life indeed. And if you had a part, bad luck. You <laughs> did that after you got home at night. Gosh, and so would you have rehearsals together as a company? As a company, yes. You would rehearse on the mornings only in Weekly Rep. Uh, you would rehearse that play Tuesday morning. Wednesday morning you would go in, you were to know your whole part in Act 1. You were not to see the script again. You must put the script down and you would work through remembering your moves and starting to act a little bit with your other actors um, with the poor assistant stage manager on the book trying to work out what they were saying. <laughs> and that would be Act 1. Act 2 would be Wednesday morning. You learnt Act 2 
Tuesday night. Oh, it's one Tuesday night. Um, that's right. Oh, I'm sorry. Go back on that. You learnt Act 1 on Tuesday night. You rehearsed it Wednesday morning. Wednesday afternoon, you had a matinee. Oh. So the study for Thursday, Act 2, would be done after the performance on Wednesday night. Right. So you are sort of learning one play ahead of yourself. Yes. That is the play that's going to start the next week. Right. And Wednesday, that's Thursday. Friday, you would do the whole play. I know you wouldn't. You'd do Act 3. On Saturday, you ran the whole play. And then there was a matinee, then the evening performance. And on the Sunday, stage management would be rather busy, getting sets out and getting sets in, etc. Or if you've got quite a big part in the play, you'd probably be given that off. Right, so, the, so that you the, could the, study. The change overnight of the plays yes. is Sunday night. That's where the get out and the get in, they call it. You get out the old set, you get the new set in. But you would not have a chance, really, to dress it, right. to prepare the set. Mm. This comes to Monday morning. On Monday morning, stage management would be in, and the lighting people would be in, and everything was got prepared. You didn't have such things as technical rehearsals in those days. They were unheard of. You had one dress rehearsal, and that would be on the Monday afternoon, and you would open on Monday evening. Oh, my word. <laughs> and if you didn't know it, well, you would hope that you'd get to know the next play better. <laughs> and so then, if you were doing it weekly, yeah. the Monday night would be opening night of the of the one you've just been rehearsing, yes. and then Tuesday morning would start, start the, the next day. Oh, yes. my word. So it was, if you ask about social life, I don't remember any social <laughs> life in that at all. And, uh, and so how, um, how many places would you move, you know, first you start up in Derby, and when would you move to the next place? Oh, I didn't, um, actually, um, it was quite a long time till I did rep again. I went on tours... I better go through. I did specials in reps. A couple of, you know, you'd get. Sometimes you were asking about the numbers in the reps. Sometimes they wanted to bring someone in, and you would go off uh, just for that week or fortnight plus the rehearsal time to do it. Fortnightly rep, of course, it was much easier. You had two weeks to get everything <laughs> ready, and three week rep was, rep was a luxury was rarely found by most of us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although I got there eventually. Uh, um, so what sort of lifestyle uh, would, would you have? Okay, no, no social life, but no. you, you, have tra you did travel around the country doing different plays. Um, yes, not in rep. No, in rap you would stick in the same place okay. for a month and end, okay. yes. No, tours were a different thing. Okay, can you and tell me indeed, about Yes, my next job was a tour. Um, that was a very frightening one. Um, I was assist. Uh, I was sorry. I was um, on the word now. Understudy. I was, understudy. Yeah, I was understudying in this one. I was engaged at very short notice. I think a day's notice. And I went off to do it. Um, they were already rehearsing. I think we opened in Brighton. I'm not sure now. Uh, but you did crazy tours. I mean, it had to be where the gaps were in the theatre. So we would get. This is quite typical. I had this. I went once from Brighton. I went to Dublin. I went to Eastbourne. I went to Edinburgh. Then I went to Belfast, and I came back to Birmingham. There was nothing easy in the journeys. They always <laughs> seemed to go as far away from each other as possible. And all this uh, by, by train? Uh, in those days, yes. And you used to get uh, vouchers for train journeys. And they used to, some of them, not all the companies, but often would engage a coach so that you all sat together. 
uh, a compartment rather than a coach, you know, a compartment or more. And that was cheaper for them. So you sat with each other <laughs> going through all these tours. And, and often, would you be working with people you didn't know? Well, at the start, they were always people I didn't mm. know. I mean, uh, you, as the years went by, you would re-meet with people. Sometimes you'd be re-engaged because you met with people or whatever it was. But very often, you were with new people each time, yes, yes. So you, had, you needed to be young and full of energy. We all get older slowly, <laughs> and I still toured. Um, yes, but it is true, you have to have a lot of energy for doing it. You have to be, you have to have an inner sort of fitness. I mean, even if you get ill, there's something that drives you on and keeps you going. Well, the show must go we, on. Yes, indeed. You have no chance of um, understudies when you're in rap, for instance. Uh, understudies are unheard of. Let me go back just a minute for mm. Derby and the sort of place we did there. They were tended to be fairly popular. You'd always get the Agatha Christie in, etc., etc. But, for instance, Holy Week was always a very bad week in the theatre. And the audience would not come in. So that was a week when you put on experimental plays. And so I remember my first uh, rep, Derby, first Easter, I'd been there about three months, we put on Looking for Godot, Waiting for Godot which is a very, um, at that time, considered a very way out play indeed. <laughs> and uh, we had an actor who was playing one of the parts, and they're massive parts, who fell ill on the Saturday, absolutely ill. There was no chance he would go on. And they looked around frantically, they phoned up London to find somebody who played the part somewhere else. And they found an actor who played the part a couple of years beforehand, but didn't really know it, and that's the only way they could keep the curtain up was to bring him in. And I remember us, the stage management, sitting at every exit from the stage, each with a book, to prompt him if the need came, which it did a couple of times, especially on that first night. Other occasions, you'd have to send stage management on with a book, and they would read if someone were really too ill to go on. That and rarely happened. And what, 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 what did the audience make of that? Rep audiences were wonderful. They loved you as actors. They, they came along each week to see you playing a juvenile lead and then an old man the next week. They just loved to see you in cotton wool on your face, whatever it was. And they always supported you so wholeheartedly. And if something went wrong like that, they were wholeheartedly with you. Hmm. And you get tremendous applause for reading it from a oh. book or whatever it is. Lovely. All sorts. When I was in Rep, oh, sometime later up in Scotland... I remember I'd gone into hospital, and I'd been away for about three months when I came back. And the first play I did coming back was Undine, and I played uh, the Lord Chamberlain, I think it was. And I started speaking off stage to make a big entrance when I into the play. And I got an entrance round that just went on and on before I was even on stage or had done anything. And this is just the warm-hearted nature of the audience that you had. Because, because they knew that you'd been ill? Just yes, because, I mean, they knew about it, it had been in the papers oh. and all this sort of thing, you see. <laughs> and so they all knew about it, and all knew I was coming back. Oh, oh, they were very warm-hearted and wonderful. <laughs> and when, years later, I went to another season in Scotland, where I finished acting, in fact, uh, stage acting anyway, Years and years later, a load of them came up from Perth to see me there. 
Oh, wow. Yes, and remembered me from 30 years before. <laughs> now, you touch on you, you, um, uh, Waiting for Godot, and you describe yes. it as, a, as an experimental play that you put on when nobody was coming yes. to the theatre. Um, so that suggests to me that back in those days, uh, a, a lot of the uh, rep theatre was um, playing more traditional type plays. Oh, yes. Um, and in 1956, John Osborne's play, Look Back in Anger, mm-hmm. um, hit the stages and sent a shockwave through the theatre world. Yes. Um, uh, this sort of so-called kitchen sink realist drama. Yes. Um, what, how did that affect the kind of work that, that you would have been doing? Um, well, I actually started regular work in Derby after that revolution had taken place, in a way. Uh, plays like Look at Back in Anchor, they certainly did it to Derby. Uh, it had a very close Derby connection because John Osborne had been one of the company there just before my time. With his first wife, Pamela Lane, and uh, he had incorporated certain things. When he talks about the Midland Town and all those cursed church bells, etc., it was his digs in Derby he was talking about. <laughs> John Dexter, the famous director, is the John Webster that is mentioned in the play. Oh. Things like that. There are a lot of Derby references throughout the play. Gosh, I didn't know that. that. No, a lot of people don't because it's never specified. But anyone who knows Darby (laughs) and who had much information about him would know it. Mm -hmm. And and was that considered experimental and and was was that put on, you know, when nobody was coming, like waiting for the No, I think, well, in the case of Darby, it was put on because of the Darby connection, I think, with him. Mm -hmm. Although he had ended up in rather a state there. I don't know the reason. But after the matinee on the last Saturday of his last day in the company, uh, he refused to go on for the evening performance. Whether it was stage fright or not, I have (laughs) no idea. But he would not go on for that uh, performance at all. And the audience were waiting for quite a long time before Pamela Lane, his then wife, uh, talked him into doing the performance. Mm. But I did hear that he had not been the easiest man. When they when he was there in rep, mm. yeah. I suppose it's it's nice to hear these stories because it, it makes that sort of iconic figure quite human. Yes, yes. Mm. <laughs> Depends how you regard human. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a, a preference for a particular genre um, of, of theatre? Not really. Um, I, I suppose I I do love Shakespeare, and when I have done Shakespeare, I have always enjoyed doing it. And I think had I gone into the Royal Shakespeare at the start, I'd have made a happy career, as many of my rather contemporaries did, mm. making Royal Shakespeare their mm. backbone, as it were. Mm. Do, do you think that it's, um, it's e- easier, quote-unquote, to, to play Shakespeare or, or to play something like a kitchen sink drama or an experimental thing like Waiting for Godot? I th- I think um, well, the experimental you. plays, like Waiting for Godot, are certainly the most difficult, mm. because you have to get into that world somehow. But far more, when it comes to Shakespeare, modern or whatever, each has its own style, and you learn the style. And once you have learnt it, you can be comfortable in it. Mm. I was brought up in what were the common plays of the 30s, etc., and whatever the style was, though we never thought of it as such, uh, is very easy for me to do. Mm. It is more difficult for me to do kitchen sink, being not my background or whatever, but I have done a number and enjoyed. Indeed, I've had, if, if they are comedies of that type, they come very easily. Mm.
you might find that in the in the course of a year, you would do a Shakespeare, you would do a kitchen sink, you'd do a light comedy, a romance. Yes, it's indeed. Shakespeare's usually were done at least once a year because of school certificates, etc., etc. They were done for GCSEs, um, and they would do the play that was thus being read or whatever, which led to there being only a handful of plays which were frequently done because they were the ones <laughs> that the schools would choose. <laughs> you had to go and see the RSC or something if you wanted to see the less usual ones. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And Shakespeare, I've always... There's, once you get the style of Shakespeare and the feel of him, he is wonderful to play. You can just... It's like sitting back on a cushion and he carries you. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful from that point of view, mm-hmm. you know, the emotion, etc. Um, um, and, and for the audience in different parts of, of the UK where you worked, did you get a sense that in a particular region they preferred Shakespeare or they preferred uh, local drama or the light comedies, Noel Coward? Uh, I suppose there is a, a, a difference. The rep audiences and the tour audiences for a long, long time remained very middle class. And you always like to see yourself on stage, as it were. <laughs> and so what you might call the middle-class plays were the ones they would come to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yes, the Noel Cards and the Terence Rattigans, etc., they did come to. The, what is now known as the well-made play, and they are well-made plays, they're very, very well-written. Uh, you take some of those Terence Rattigan plays, he went right out of fashion after the kitchen sink. Mm-hmm. It was the end of his career, really. Oh, right. um, but he still continued to write these very good, well-made plays, which at last are being rediscovered, I'm mm. glad to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so um, are you saying that, from your experience, that, that the kitchen sink dramas um, brought a different kind of audience? Yes, to a large extent. Uh, to a large extent. Even much later on, uh, one of the last reps I worked in regularly where we did quite a lot. We did some. We did Joe Wharton's, which are difficult. Uh, but, for instance, swearing, uh, the, you would still get a hiss from some of the audience <laughs> when you did. Mm. Yes, they were not comfortable with it. Mm. Mm. Orton came to mind for that because I remember <laughs> an incident of it. Yes, but... Um, uh. Yes, that's quite interesting because there was a play that was on... Uh, a few years ago, Patrick Marvers shopping and effing. Oh yes, in, in that's right. Yes, it's come quite yes. a long way since. Oh, a long way from that sort of thing. Um, I don't really know today what reps do about place, a place like that because mm. they don't really work in the old system at all, mm. and they don't have the same audiences either. Mm. I don't mm. think. And how? What was it like playing to uh, a middle class audience, a working class audience, and oh, you know, and, and to school kids? Did you get a different feedback feel? I, I've always. Um, I've always enjoyed doing pantomime and anything where children are involved and you get response. Like many an actor, I love playing with the audience, you know. <laughs> and I love playing to the audience when the chance comes. You know, even sometimes in uh, comedies of manners, say Sheridan, um, your chance to speak to the audience is wonderful. Incidentally, I found Sheridan the most difficult ever to learn of all the people I learned. Sheridan? Yes, because he doesn't fit naturally to the thought process. Hmm. You have to learn his words rather than learn thoughts. And that made him, for me, very difficult. Once you've got it, this, uh, once again, you can work in the style very well. Hmm. That's interesting. I never thought, because not, not knowing uh, anything about acting or, or drama hmm. from that side, um, 
I never thought about the, the whole process of learning the script. Can you just talk more about that? It's difficult, exactly, because I think every actor has his own method, mm -hmm. his way of doing it. Today, too, uh, the process in theatre has changed a lot. Today, you rehearse a lot before you drop the script. And you find the process of learning is going on while you are using the script. And the moves, etc., all the responses... Uh, come much more naturally, as it were, because they're not imposed. So it's more organic. Uh, organic, and the, the lines go with the moves, with everything else, mm -hmm. and comes in more easily. But there comes a time, even in that process, where you've got to sit down and learn it. <laughs> um, what you do really, the difference from learning, say, when you're a, a child and learn by rote, I can still quote poems and goodness knows what else from childhood, but ask me to do anything from plays, it's not there. It's just not there. And do you uh, think that poetry helps that with Shakespeare? You know, there's not, not really rhythm does. I mean, mm -hmm. <coughs> the English language fits naturally into the iambic pentameter. It's really the way we speak when I'm talking to you yes. now. In a sense, <laughs> you will find there's a, an iambic pentameter beat to it, mm -hmm. quite unlike French, mm -hmm. which has that Alexandrian <laughs> flow or whatever to it. Um, and so you learn the rhythm. You don't learn it by poetry. It isn't the same. Mm -hmm. And when you're learning a part in a play, you're learning thoughts rather than words. And the words that the author uses tend to slip in as you're learning the thought process. You, you're thinking through. Uh, I hate working with actors who've just learned their lines and don't know what you're going to say to them. And you sort of get a blank. They say their bit and they go blank. It doesn't happen so much now. Weekly Record happened a lot. <laughs> they, they'd learned their bit and they didn't know what you were going to say. Um, um, right, so yes, the, the, the contrast between just learning the bits that refer yes. to, to relate to your character yes. as opposed to learning the whole play. Yes. I was always um, welcoming companies, I think, because if others forgot where they were on a play... I could prompt them at once, right. but I could turn the play around to what was their forgotten line. I was not so lucky when I forgot, and I had others opposite <laughs> me, but they were. And so uh, what would happen if, if you suddenly went, went blank? Would you improvise, or would there somebody be um, I've always tended towards improvisation then. But when I started, you did have prompts in the corner who prompted you. And you had actors and actresses who made their career. Uh, going around rep companies and doing this, and I do remember very well, um, although I can't remember where it was. I think it was when I was up in Tynemouth. Uh, we had an actress came in, and it was the policy of the director and the theatre, you did not get prompted whatever went wrong, hmm. you see. You had to get yourself out of the mess. And this actress was one I knew from previously, and a very good actress too. And the moment she knew she couldn't get prompted, she started losing it. She just couldn't get by without the knowledge of the support of a prompter in the corner. Yes, it wasn't so much that she didn't know it, <coughs> that it was just sort of freaked her out. It was a sort of psychological yes. thing. But I have tended always to try and get out uh, with sometimes disastrous results. <laughs> uh, I think any actor, if he started with anecdotes about his career, there would be a number of them. But we won't, that's not this particular okay, well, one. Okay, we will save them maybe for, for another podcast. Yes. Um, now that uh, you're retired, uh, do you still go to the theatre? Oh, yes, a lot. Far more than I can afford. <laughs> I tend to go to the um, 
matinees for old age pensioners, <laughs> especially the National Theatre. I go to a great deal. I see most of what they do. And when Royal Shakespeare comes up, I, I tend to go to theatre plays, and most of the West End is now musicals. Mm. So I go to quite a few fringe as well, mm. etc. I went to the Almeida. It's not quite fringe, but I went to Almeida mm. a couple of weeks ago, etc. Mm. Um, I keep up quite a lot with theatre, I enjoy it. And what changes have you, have struck you um, over the years? One thing definitely would be the way things are rehearsed. Um, I think you get a much more thoroughly rehearsed play than you used to get. Uh, And there seem, I think acting probably, I hate to say it, but I think generally is pretty good at the moment. I think the standard of acting in this country is very high. Whereas in the old days, the best was high. If mm. you went to the old Vic and things like that, you'd get very good acting. But I can remember some pretty awful performances <laughs> on the West End. <laughs> so standards have improved. I think so. Jolly yes, I thing. think so. Yeah. Um, so what, do you have any thoughts about what the role, what role the theatre should play? It certainly should have a role in society itself. It isn't just entertainment. Nothing infuriated me more than uh, Lady Thatcher deciding that the theatre was entertainment Hmm. and lumping the whole thing as to an industry, an entertainment industry. It is not. Good theatre is much, much more than that. It reflects society, it comments on society, and it can help society. And I believe it should be doing so. Not all the time. You can go to Agatha Christie if you want. I mean, yes, <laughs> why not? Why not? But that is certainly one of the central functions of theatre. Walter Plinge, uh, thank you very much. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that was Walter Plinge, the late Philip Blaine. The conversation was recorded for my first podcast series, Fusion View, back in 2008. Fusion View is now closed. You've been listening to Creative Conversations. To find this and other episodes in the series, go to the Creative Conversations website via the bit.ly short link, which is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash creativeconversations hyphen podcast. There are also photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. Here is the bit.ly short link for the show notes page, and it's bit.ly bit.ly forward slash ccv hyphen an actor's life. If you've enjoyed this episode of Creative Conversations, can I ask you to help me get the show to more people? You can do this by sharing this episode with your friends or across your social network. Or please think about subscribing to the show or leaving a lovely review. It will help the magic algorithms bring the show to more people. And you can do this on anchor.fm or iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Creative Conversations is a Tiger Spirit podcast conceived and presented by me, Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Tiger Spirit UK and I'm on Twitter and Instagram as at Tiger Spirit UK. Thanks for listening and see you next time.